Good morning, everyone. If you had your Bibles open to Psalm 71, you can leave them there. That's where we'll be uh, today. And thank you, Tabitha, for reading. I asked her if she would read, and she said yes. And I said, well, it's 24 verses of a psalm. And she was like, are you kidding me? So I get people to commit first and then tell them how much they have uh, to read. But if you would like to ever uh, lend your voice to reading and praying for us in the mornings, we would love to have you uh, do that. We are continuing our work through just a couple of psalms through the summer as we prepare for August and then looking ahead to uh, the fall. And so today we begin by, I make sure I turn my mic on, by looking at Psalm 71. In her book, the author Rachel Rochelle Parham, in her book, The Mythical Me, shares the following regarding how to cultivate a healthy memory. She writes, Developing a redemptive memory requires recalling not only the pain of the past, but also the joy, seeing both the problems and the solutions, seeking to spot the ways that God has provided even in the midst of difficult situations. A redemptive memory enables me to face the facts of the past as well as my own feelings. I work at comprehending the truth that God always has loved me and always will love me. A friend of mine says that we should always look for evidences of grace, and I found it enormously helpful to remember my past with a specific goal of recognizing God's help. Now that I have had some practice in looking back in this way, I've gotten better and better at spotting patterns of provision. Today, as we look at Psalm 71, we join in the journey with an older saint who, though still dogged by the evil and troubles of this world, is able to look back and remember God's grace, provision, and care for him as a means to sturdy himself and press on to finish the race set before him. My prayer for us today is that we would cultivate in our own minds a redemptive memory of what God has done in our lives already. I also pray that we would seek to learn from and mind the memories of those older saints in our lives who have a testimony of the ongoing goodness and faithfulness of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are grateful this morning for the truth of Psalm 71. For the truth that even in old age, as troubles and enemies pursue us, we can still turn to you in prayer. We can still turn to you and ask you to be God for us, that there's no expiration date on your care for us. There's no way in which your care and provision and protection of us is tied to our ability to perform. It's all an overflow of your character. And so guys, we consider this psalmist words today. I pray that whether we're in our 20s or our 40s or our 60s or wherever we fall in our age, that we would look back. We would look back and go, I've seen I've seen how God has continually cared for me and that it would give us a sturdiness and a confidence even as we look ahead to what the rest of life may have for us, that we would do so with a sturdy confidence that's continually encouraged and strengthened by our redemptive memory of all that you've done for us so that we would have faith and confidence in what you've yet to do. We ask all this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Psalmist writes in Psalm 71, verses 1 through 8, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. For you, O Lord, are my hope. My trust, O Lord, from my youth upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. 
I've been as important or assigned to many, but you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Once again, we have the psalmist opening his prayer with a reminder to himself and others of the character and nature of the God he is praying to. If you've been following along with us this summer, you should begin to grab, gravitate towards the comfort and love that almost all of the psalms either begin with or quickly move to a declaration of who God is because we all know we are prone to forget. John Calvin writes in his famous work, The Institutes, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. And if we're not constantly reminding ourselves from the scriptures the truth of who God is, we will have a God that maybe is close to the God of the scriptures, but that is somehow not the God of the scriptures. That We will begin to form God in our own image. And so the psalmist brings us back over and over and over again through all 150 psalms. The psalms either start or move very quickly to a reminder of who God is, his character, his nature, how he has been, how he will be. Because what we must remember is when we go to God in prayer, we must do so by constantly restating to ourselves the character and nature of God. Because all biblical prayers ask God to continue to be who he has been, both through the present situation and into the future. Thus, the writer of the psalm appeals to God's righteousness and protection, calling him a rock of refuge against the enemies that have come against him. So if we're going to be faithful, biblical prayers, if we're going to be people who have our entire life shaped by, the God that, shaped by God as he's revealed himself in the scriptures, then our prayers always come back to and are grounded in the truth of restating from the scriptures who God is. Notice with me in verse 3, there are two things that the psalmist writes that are worth pausing to consider. First, he says in the first half of the verse, Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. The psalmist models for us the ever-present help of God for those who call on him. The call of the Christian life is to go out and live in the world, to be a display of the glory of God at work in your life. It's not a call for retreat. It's not a call to stay hold up, unengaged in the world. It's a call to engage the world. But when we run into trouble, we have the welcome invitation to run back to God as our protection and our provision. Notice in the language of verse 3, to which I may continually come, there is no indication here of there being a limit to how many times we can return to God when dealing with trouble. Whether it is trouble that sought us out or trouble of our own making. There's never a point where we should run anywhere else when faced with trouble than first to God. The psalmist says, you're the one that I continually come to as I live to follow you in the world. The place I always return for protection is to you. It doesn't matter how big the trouble. It doesn't matter how small the trouble. The psalmist says, you are the one I continually come to. We would do well to follow the psalmist example. That there's no trouble too big or too small in our life that our first inclination shouldn't be to run back to God, to pray for God to be who he is, to ask God to continue to be who he is, even as we face the varied troubles of this life. You're never going to hit a point where he says, all right, you've been here enough. He's not like the mama bird who kicks the birds out of the nest so that they'll learn to fly so that they will never come back. He is, as we find out in Luke, 
The father who stands and searches the horizon for his kids coming home again. He is the God who pursues us even as we turn back to him. The prodigal son does not return to a father who says, you're no longer welcome here. You've done enough. You should be able to do this on your own. The father runs and meets him and lavishes his love and his grace and his forgiveness on him. That's what the psalmist is saying. You're the one I continually come to, and there's never going to be a point that you turn me away, and so he comes. Second, he says, you have given the command to save me. There are no other options for the psalmist at this point. He doesn't run through everything that he's tried to do to save himself. He simply says, you have given the command to save me. He wants God to fulfill what he has already commanded, namely the deliverance of his people. And as we've talked about through various books of the Bible, as we've worked through different texts, what God says is a reflection of his character. And if God says it, then God will do it because God would never say something and then not do it as a means to betray his own character. And so he says, look, God, you've said it. Your character is unchanging. You're always going to be who you said you're going to be. So now I'm asking you, you've given the command. Now make it true. You've said this would be true. Now make it true for me. And it makes sense if you pause to think about it. Whether you're the psalmist in Psalm 71 or you're us here today. If you are trusting in the God who spoke and created galaxies, stars, planets, animals, plants, human beings, then surely you can trust that the word he has spoken concerning his care for you will come true. It may not be on the timeline we would prefer. It may not look the way we anticipate it would look. But there is no way in which God would go back on his word. So the words that God speaks are to be words of comfort. Think of it like this. The voice of God is powerful enough to create. The voice of God is terrifying enough to scatter our enemies. And the voice of God is soft enough to bring us great comfort. He says, this is what you've commanded. Would you make it true for me? And then in verses 5 through 8, the psalmist transitions from petition to praise. This is the rhythm of the entire psalm in Psalm 71, but it is also the rhythm of our lives. An ebb and flow, asking God to be God and praising him for being himself. If you were to map out your life like they do the charts of the tide, it would be an ebb and flow, petition and praise, petition and praise, petition and praise. We're always moving back and forth between asking God to be who he is and then celebrating when he is who he said he was. This is what all of life looks like. When we learn from these four verses that the writer of this prayer is able to look back through the history of his life and see that from the beginning, from the time he was in his mother's womb, God has been there sustaining him by his power and provision and grace. This leads the psalmist to boldly and rightly proclaim that the Lord is his hope and trust. There is no other who has been there for him in the way that God has. Even before he knew God, God knew him and was caring for him. As he considers all of God's attention to him from birth until now, the psalmist cannot help but praise and glorify God. He says in 7, I've been as important or assigned to many, meaning think about Job's friend's response to him. 
People have walked by and seen this man in his frail old age and been shocked at the condition he's in. He says, I've been assigned to many, but you are my strong refuge. He contrast how other people view him versus God's standing welcome of him and it leads to praise and ache. my mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day the language here is the imagery of a cup brimming full you pour the water in or you fill the cup with a liquid and that surface tension will hold it even if you fill it beyond its ability to what it will actually hold but the minute the minute you bump the glass in any way What's inside spills out. He says, I'm brimming with your praise. I'm filled with your glory all the day. Therefore, even when trials and sufferings bump me, what spills out is praise for you. What spills out is worship of you. What would it look like for us to be so marinated in and comforted by the scriptures that we daily, regardless of the circumstances, Good or bad or indifferent, regardless of the trials and the sufferings, regardless of the joys, what would it look like if we began to ask the Spirit to fill us to brimming every day with praise for God so that whatever bumped into us, whatever we encountered in our day, praise was what naturally flowed out of us. That's what the psalmist is after. That's what the psalmist wants to be true as he continues to follow after God, even in his old age. It's true for us, too. If you were to look back over the course of your life, and you've had a moment where you put your faith and trust in Jesus, it opens up a way for us to look back at our life, even to birth, and begin to see the ways in which God has sustained us even before we knew him. Think about your life pre-Jesus. Think about all he saved you from as you're able to look back and recognize it. It is a mountain, a testimony to God's sustaining grace and provision in your life. Because if he doesn't sustain you, you fall away and never make it to him. If he doesn't draw you, you never stumble your way into his presence and desire him. God looks at our life and goes, I've sustained you and I've drawn you. And then by grace, when he comes into our heart and redeems us and opens our eyes, we can look as far back as even being in our mother's wombs and go, he was caring for me then. And he has not missed a day of care for me since. And he will care for me through to the very end. The psalmist says, draw comfort from this and let it drive you to praise. And then he goes on in verses 9 through 17, and he writes, Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. For my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver him. O God, be not far from me. O God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed with scorn and disgrace. May they be covered who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous act, of your deeds of salvation all day, for their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. The pattern of petition and praise repeats itself here. 
The psalmist becomes more direct, though, in asking that God intervene on his behalf and do away with the evil men, who even in the psalmist's feeble old age would still like nothing more than to see him fall and bring him to ruin. And there is not enough strength left in his body for him to do this on his own. Therefore, in the midst of this psalm, he pleads with God through an imprecatory prayer, asking for God to curse and conquer his enemies for him. We spoke of this a few weeks ago, about how we pray for God to eliminate or remove evil. We talked about the caution we must take. And so I want to share with you six things from the NIV Study Bible that I think would help us better understand how to engage with the imprecatory psalms. Because you read some of these and it's hard. When the psalmist write, cut their bellies open and dash their babies on the rocks, what do you do with that? So I want to give six framework ways to think about this. They're going to be up on the screen. If you don't get a chance to write them down, if you've got your phone, you can snap a picture. I can send this out later. But I want to help us not relegate these psalms to the dustbin of a past primitive culture. They're still valuable for us today. And we know this because they're contained in the scriptures. And if they would not be valuable for us today, God would have not inspired them to make their way into the scriptures. So let's walk through these six things fairly quickly. The first thing an imprecatory psalm does is it displays a proper outrage at sin. A proper outrage at sin. Not a coddling of sin, not an excusing of sin, but a proper outrage at sin. And that is what the psalmist is expressing here, and you see throughout the psalms as these prayers are mentioned. Second thing is this. In asking God to punish evil, the psalmist is appealing to God's very nature as a righteous judge. So notice, it's an outrage at sin that reflects God's own view of sin. But secondly, it appeals to God's character as a righteous judge, not the whims of our anger in the moment. That is key if we're going to pray these things well, is to pray that God would act in accordance with his character and nature as a righteous judge. Third thing to realize is this. The psalmist, in writing these prayers, never vow to take personal vengeance. The imprecations are prayers asking God to rouse himself and act against the wicked. We do not take vengeance. The New Testament tells us, Paul writes, that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. God will get justice exactly right. We stand a chance of getting justice wrong. So what we don't pursue is vengeance. But when God answers the prayers that we pray for the evil to be eliminated, for the evil to be removed, what we find is that we are vindicated in asking God to do what only God can do. And so we don't seek vengeance. We pray these prayers so that we would be vindicated for the right belief in God and who he is. Fourth, the psalmist and the prophets were acutely sensitive to the possibility of wrong motives in asking God to act in such ways. This is not the prayer you pray when somebody cuts you off on College Road. Well, that's not the appropriate time to feel like God smite them. No, we don't pray in the midst of a traffic jam these prayers. We have to be aware that there is a possibility our motives are wrong. 
So we enter into prayer, praying these prayers for God to deal with evil with the understanding, especially when it's evil that's confronted us. When it's not theoretical evil anymore. It's evil that has confronted us face to face. When we pray for God to act, we do so with the acute possibility that we may have a wrong motive. And so if God doesn't answer the prayer how we see fit, God may be not responding to the wrong motives, but he'll always respond to the truth of his character and his nature. And we may see after the fact where our motives were wrong. Fifth is this, the language of imprecation, like much of poetic language, expresses outrage at sin and injustice, but it is not meant to be taken literally in every detail. Good songs, good poetry evokes emotion from us, but we don't take everything we hear in a song or everything we read in poetry to be literally followed word for word. The devil has never went down to Georgia. It's a catchy song. It communicates something, but it's not, we don't go, well, yeah, the devil obviously went down to Georgia with a fiddle and had a fiddle contest. We hear songs, we read poetry, we engage with things that evoke emotion and thought and passion in our lives, but we go, well, I don't follow through with everything that's written literally. The same way when we read these, we don't always go, well, then everything has to happen literally the way that I interpret that it's written or else this is not true. Sixth and finally, sometimes, if not always, the imprecations are not absolute. Rather, they must be seen as prayers to bring people to repentance, not to punish for the sake of punishment. There are times where the psalmist and the prophets and others pray prayers asking for punishment to be done because there is no hope of turning. But more often than not, the prayers are prayed as a means by which God would bring repentance and restoration before final judgment. So this is how we begin to engage with imprecatory psalms in a way that we don't go, well, i got to skip over this part. Or I'm embarrassed to talk about this part. It helps give us a language and an understanding for, yeah, I can now engage with these sections of Scripture in a healthy way that would inform me as a follower of Jesus, even in the world today. Therefore, having prayed for God to intervene on his behalf, the psalmist now turns back to praise, beginning with his declaration of hope in verse 14 which serves as the hinge point of the psalm. Notice his enemies are around him. He says, oh God, be not far from me. Oh God, make haste to help me. And just above that, he says, those who watch my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him for there is none to deliver him. His enemies are nearby. They're watching his life. And yet even in the presence of his enemies, the psalmist will not be quiet about what God has done for him and his hope for what God will do for him. He says that the evidences of God's grace and past salvation are so great that they are impossible to count up. Brings to mind the words at the end of John's gospel concerning Jesus. John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And then at the end of John 21, and we don't have this up here, but I'll paraphrase, he says, these are just some of the things that were done. If you were to write about all that Jesus did while on earth, John says there aren't enough books to hold the stories of all that God has done. 
The psalmist says the same thing. I can look back and go, man, there's no way to calculate all the ways. If you really understand who we are and who God is, there's no way to sum up and tally up all the evidences of God's work in our life. Your deeds of salvation all the day. He says, that's what my mouth will tell of your righteous acts, your deeds of salvation. Their number is past my knowledge. He says, but I'll still give voice to them. Listen, when, when fear and evil and enemies press in on us, not only do we pray, ask God to remove it, but that's even when we double down our efforts to remember what God has done for us in the past. To build a mountain of evidence that suggests and solidifies our trust that God is not going to betray us now. That God is not going to leave us now. He says, I'm going to remember, because they're close. They're close enough, I can hear what they're saying. Let's get him. There's nobody left to care for him. Let's take him out. And yet he says, I will continually praise you. And he says, I'll remind them of your righteousness and yours alone. He says, I'm going to remind them, I'm not the hero of my story. God, you are. I'm going to remind them not of what I've done, but what you've done in my life so that they would have a chance to consider the surety of their punishment if they don't relent. If God has done it, if God has been who he said he's going to be in the psalmist's life and in our life, then as we communicate to others the care and the provision of God in our life, it does two things. It reminds us of God's ongoing care for us, but it reminds us of the surety of the punishment due those who will not confess and repent and turn from their ways. Sometimes it's even our testimony in the presence of our enemies to the goodness and the greatness of God that maybe, be, that maybe would be used by God as a means to turn their hearts to him. Reminding himself and his enemies of God's righteousness serves as a reminder that the hope mentioned in verse 14 is grounded in the realization that God is going to continue to be God. She says, more and more I will praise you. More and more I will tell of all that you've done for me. I will praise you. The question for us to consider this morning is this. Where is it in our life that we go, the suffering has got so great, the pressure of the enemies has gotten so bad, that now, God, I'm out of time, out of reasons to praise you. The psalmist says, the situations and the circumstances don't determine my understanding of if you're worthy of praise. It's everything you've done for me in the past that determines that even now, even in the midst of what I'm facing, you are still worthy of praise because I've got a truckload of evidence of your goodness and your grace and your care for me. That, oh, that we would be people who mine our own histories, our own stories to write out, to consider, to ponder God's work in our lives. Then the psalmist goes on in verses 18 through 24 and writes, So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me, until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? You have made me see many troubles and calamities. You who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again from the depths of the earth. You will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. 
I will also praise you with the harp of your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you, my soul also which you have redeemed. And my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long, for they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. He closes, if you look at the end of verse 24, he says, I'll give your, I will sing of your praises, talk of your praises all the day, for they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. That hasn't happened yet, but he is confident that God is going to do what he has asked him to do. And so he's able to put the formation around these last couple verses with the certainty that God is going to answer his prayer. And so if we back up then to 18, it helps give some context and some good thoughts to go with his final petition. The final petition is one verse, and it is a profound request, and it's really just half of a verse. He says, so even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me. There is an insight here that still proves true today. We often measure God's care for us based off of our usefulness to him. Because that is how we navigate almost every other relationship in our life. We navigate almost every other relationship in our life based off of usefulness to us to achieve what we want to achieve in our life. And once somebody reaches the end of their usefulness in our life, We let the relationship die and we move on to the next person that can help us do what we want to do. And oftentimes that bleeds back into our understanding of our relationship with God. We say, I've got this moment, these times to offer myself in service to God. But when that runs out, then what? What will God do when I'm no longer able to do anything for him? Psalm says, even in old age and gray hairs, do not forsake me. This also plays out in our society when we think about how we treat the elderly. We have a view of the elderly that once they reach a certain point where they can't work and they can't function and they can't do, that out of sight, out of mind, that we forsake them, we put them away, and then we continue on with our life. The psalmist says, God, don't do that to me. Don't warehouse me. Stay nearby. Continue to pour out your love and your care to me. But perhaps this is a fear you've dealt with or you're dealing with. What will God do when you cannot do anything? Here's what he'll do. He'll love you. He'll care for you. He'll sustain you. And he'll see you safely home. Even as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he will be with us. And he will bring us up out of the grave to be with him forever. God is fully committed to you for eternity. Whatever your present usefulness, whatever your future unusefulness, God's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. He will be with you every step of the way. Even when we see many troubles and calamities, as he says in verse 20, it's God who revives us again. It's God who brings us up from the depths of the earth. There's nowhere you'll go, and we'll look at this next week in Psalm 139. There's nowhere you go that God is not with you. There's nowhere you could pitch your tent, as David would write in Psalm 139, that God isn't intimately aware of. 
So what do we do with all that God has done for us and all that he has taught us about himself and what it means to follow him? As we consider where we are, as we consider that none of us know how much longer we have left, we assume we know how much time we have left roughly, but none of us know how much time we have left. So perhaps even in our youth, if we were able to see our life from God's perspective, we are already the old man with gray hair. That our time on this earth is drawing quickly to a close. We don't know. So what do you do with all that God has done for you and all that you've learned about him? Notice what the psalmist says. He says, do not forsake me. But then he gives the reason why. The second half of 18. Until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. What we do is we worship him and we tell the next generation of what God has done. That is the tone and the tenor of the final verses of Psalm 71. There is a burden each generation bears to share the good news of the gospel with the next generation. This understanding of passing down the story of who God is and how he had redeemed his people out of Egypt and from slavery and established them as a nation and given them the promised land, this was to be rehearsed often in the life of the Israelites. Moses writes in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Moses says in Deuteronomy, there's no point in life when you're on the way somewhere or sitting somewhere that one of the first things out of your mouth shouldn't be a recounting of who God is and what God has done for you. And he says, tell your children. Don't assume that they're going to somehow magically pick it up. Tell your children, tell those next to you, tell those you live beside and work beside and play beside. Tell those that you know the truth about who God is and what he's done for you. For as long as God sustains us, one of the primary things we do, like the psalmist says, is tell others about God and his salvation. We all, everyone in here, has a testimony. A story of God's work in our lives that we must steward for our good and for the glory of God. And here's the deal. I need to hear your story so that I don't lose faith. And I need you to tell my kids your story so that they would see a more complete picture of who God is and how God redeems and how God saves. And you need to hear my story. We need to be a people gathered around telling one story from many different angles about the provision and the care and the salvation and the goodness of God because we are prone to forget. And sometimes, sometimes if we're honest, coming to the Scriptures feels like a lost cause. Scriptures contain the fullness of life and everything we need to know. But sometimes, sometimes what we need to hear is how those truths have impacted your life. And you need to hear how they've impacted my life. And we share a story of the ongoing care and comfort of God. There are two places light can go. This is not going to be very scientific, but stick with me. 
Two places primarily light could go. One, if light goes into a black hole, light doesn't come back out. The light is consumed, the black hole fold, folds in on itself, and everything that enters never finds its way back out. Everything that is poured into the black hole is lost and gone forever. And so one option for us is to live our lives like black holes. That everything that God has done for us would go into us and never make its way back out. That we would fold everything about the goodness and the grace of God in on ourselves and never tell others, never tell the next generation, never tell our spouses or our families or our co-workers the good news of what Jesus has done for us. And so on one hand, we can become spiritual black holes. We consume a lot, but nothing ever makes it out. There's a second option. Sometimes light passes through a prism. When light, whether it's sunlight, a flashlight, or other types of light, passes through a prism, light that we can see hits, and inside the prism, it is bent. Light, when it passes from just being in the air, hits the glass. The glass slows it down. And the glass then bends the light back out of the prism. And because the speed of light is varied, you see the colors come out that make up light. We should be those who recognize God's work in our life as the means by which he makes his invisible attributes visible through bending his love and his grace and his mercy and his prayer, protection and provision into our lives to meet our circumstances and to care for us. And then as we talk about it, it's what shoots the light back out in a way that displays the beauty and the glory of Jesus. We are the primary way by which God's invisible attributes are made visible. We are the prism through which what is all around us enters into our life, meets our needs, and then as we talk about it, it is projected back out to make much of Jesus and his beauty and his value and his worth. We should be asking, how do I leverage God's care and God's salvation for me? How do I tell my story in a way that reflects and refracts the light back out to make much of the beauty and glory of Jesus? And that's what the psalmist does in Psalm 71. He takes everything from the past and he focuses it and he narrows it in and he says, this has been true for me. It's entered into and made a difference in my life and now I'm going to tell it. Now I'm going to tell the next generation. Now my mouth and my lips will be filled with praise. I will shout for joy and sing praises to you. He says, this is going to be true for me. Simon Sinek in his book, Start With Why, shares the following. On a cold January day, a 43-year-old man was sworn in as the chief executive of his country. By his side stood his predecessor, a famous general who, 15 years earlier, had commanded his nation's armed forces in a war that resulted in the defeat of Germany. The young leader was raised in the Roman Catholic faith. He spent the next five hours watching parades in his honor and stayed up celebrating until 3 o'clock in the morning. You know who I'm describing, right? It's January 30th, 1933, and I'm describing Adolf Hitler, and not, as most people would assume, John F. Kennedy. 
The point is we make assumptions. We make assumptions about the world around us based on sometimes incomplete or false information. In this case, the information I offered was incomplete. Many of you were convinced that I was describing John F. Kennedy until I added one minor little detail, the date. This is important because our behavior is affected by our assumptions and our perceived truths. We make decisions based on what we think we know. It wasn't too long ago that the majority of people believed the world was flat. This perceived truth impacted behavior. During this period, there was very little exploration. People feared that if they traveled too far, they might fall off the edge of the earth. So for the most part, they stayed put. It wasn't until that minor detail was revealed, the world is round, that behaviors changed on a massive scale. Simon Sinek hits on very, something very important. It's often the minor details of God's character that we get wrong. It's often the minor things about who God is that cause us to then make assumptions and live out of perceived truths that are not based in reality. We should be making decisions not on what we think we know, but by God's grace on what we know we know from the Scriptures. Because here's the deal, even the smallest detail about the truth of who God is and what he's done for us and what he's promised for us, any small minor detail we get wrong could lead to wrong behavior, wrong living. So we join with the psalmist in in asking that through the faithful witness of the scriptures and the indwelling presence of the spirit and the testimony of the saints down through the ages that we would ground ourselves in the truth of the gospel that we would work to no longer respond to our situation and circumstances based off of what we think we know, but what we know we know. And we will be faithful to pass those lived experiences grounded in the truth of God's love for us on to the next generation. And that as life happens, as sufferings and evil and joys bump into us, that we would find ourselves overflowing with praise. We would take a catalog of all of God's care for us, We would begin to realize, even now, with whatever time we've got left, the evidences of God's salvation for us are too many to count, too many to add up, and that we would rest comforted in the fact that if he's been faithful for this long, he's going to be faithful for forever, and that we would rest in that this morning. Let's pray. God, we are grateful this morning for the truth of the gospel, the truth that you love us.